Hello and welcome to the Sekiro Podcast. My name is Porrick Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ocean Collins. Hello Porrick, another weekend of European rugby and it's really getting down to the last couple of corners here. It's getting to the real nitty gritty and it's all about permutations now for next week. We've had the calculator out. <laughs> That's for sure. But before we get into all the rugby and all the matches, we'll talk about the week's news. That's right. And we start with rumour more than news this week. Given the proposed ring fencing of the Premiership in the UK, it looks like some of those other teams might want to try and get into the Pro 14. So we could have the likes of Ealing Trailfinders and the Rotherham Titans competing in the Pro 14 next year. Well, at least they'll make the Kings look good. Well, they won't make them look any worse. Although, who knows whether Brexit is going to put a complete kibosh on that again. It's all rumour, and it's not really a direction the Pro 14 really should be going in. Well, not from a rugby perspective, but it would potentially open up the UK TV market. So, given that the Pro 14 guys are so conscious from a money point of view, we could yet see this become a reality. And moving from TV to print media, this week the Irish Independent released a really, really weird article. Pretty much saying to players... If you're not going to tell us why you're unavailable or what injury you have, we're going to effectively make up rumours about you. And this is off the back of Conor Murray coming out this week saying that the rumours of why he was unavailable, the effect it had on him and his family. It's the old journalism approach of print a lie because then you get two days news. You get to print the retraction the next day. But it's pretty much scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of journalistic ethics. Like They don't call it the bindo for nothing. I saw this and I was actually incredulously angry. How could a national media outlet pretty much threaten players? I would love to see the Rugby Players Association of Ireland just say, you know what, we're never dealing with you again. Well, I heard that there was no Irish independent people at the Connacht game because they were all caught in a giant cockfighting ring. So maybe that's what happened. That's it. We just make up our own news now. It works for them. Works for us. (laughs) But enough of rumour, let's move on to some real facts. And as always with the European games, we talk through these pool by pool. And pool one saw a monster clash, Leinster v Toulouse, with an unexpectedly one-sided scoreline in the end. 29 points to 13 to Leinster. This was the definition of a game for the purists. And by that we mean a proper hard-hitting affair with both teams going 100%, both defences, hitting hard, turning over possession. Like... What was it, 3-3 with 30 minutes gone? Like, that's a purist fantasy. It's strange because you look at the scoreline and there were a number of tries put away here. Leinster did get the try bonus point. But it was very much a game where defences were on top, certainly for the first hour of it. Like, at one stage, Leinster went through 38 phases and didn't really look like breaching the try line. No, they're kind of a parody of themselves. We keep saying that they're so good at holding the ball. But it's incredible to see a team put together so many 20-plus phases of possession. And particularly when you consider that Leinster's carrying roster was missing the likes of Robbie Henshaw, of Devon Toner, of James Lowe in this game. There was an awful lot of those Leinster carriers, Tyke Furlong, Keen Healy and Reese Ruddock, doing a lot more work than they would normally have to. And doing it very impressively. Yes, yeah, Scott Fardy, who I thought was an able replacement for Devon Toner, did those hard, niggly carries that Toner's really good at and doesn't get enough credit for it. But Toulouse were actually stringing some stuff together themselves, but their final pass just wasn't sticking. No, they looked like a team who put themselves under a lot of pressure and there was nearly a sense of panic. You think about the last time that this Toulouse squad have been in big knockout type games. They don't have that same type of brutal efficiency that Leinster did. 
And the difference in the first half was experience. Leinster had two scrums in a few minutes of each other. McGrath got held up off one. And because Toulouse had to pack more players down, there was suddenly more space around the field for Leinster to move them around. And eventually, Corner got over after a few phases. And part of that was about how quick Leinster's ruck ball was. And there's two components to that. Their back row were very effective at protecting their ball. But Luke McGrath was in attendance at every ruck. He was so snappy at getting the ball away. He really had one of those type of games that even for me, he was in a discussion for that 21 jersey for Ireland. Real shame that he got that nasty injury at the end of the game as well. Looks like he could well miss the Six Nations. There's a really high chance that like we'll all be looking out for any possible injury reports during the week. For sure. Watching this game though, the tackle count that both sides were racking up was enormous. And the tackling was so physical, particularly as you got close to the try line. You might let a little bit of ground go in the tackle when you're out on your 22 or your 10 metre line. But you get within 10 metres of that line and the amount of physical hits going in and stopping players dead by both Toulouse and Leinster was so impressive. We build this as the game of the weekend, like two giants of European rugby, and it really, really was that type of affair. But the packs can't take all the credit for that. Ringrose especially, he's a special talent. For me, he's a world-class 13 now. I couldn't agree more. He's one of those players who just sees space and seems to have time on the ball whenever he gets his hand on it. And if you look at the team Leinster put out, he was really the senior player in that outfit. And he still only has a handful of caps. It's astonishing how young he is because he plays in such a composed way. But this game really didn't open up until the second half. I think the amount of work Toulouse had to do in that first half kind of started to tell and the Leinster started picking off tries. And when their bench came in, it made a difference as well. They were just able to continue to lift the pace, whereas Toulouse weren't able to bring quite as much experience off the bench. The bonus point try in particular for Leinster was all about Jameson Gibson Park just being awake to the opportunity and Adam Byrne running in for a try. It was a really smart tap and goal, but the pass out to Adam Byrne was spectacular. And half the time, those are the passes that get intercepted, but he just picked the line of the pass beautifully. Toulouse did get a consolation try at the end, and it was my man Cheson Colby who looked electric every time he got the ball, but Leinster just shut him down up until the 77th, 78th minute. He was just so alive to that pop-up pass. I think he was the only person on the pitch alive to the fact that ball might be coming back as quickly as it did. But you know what? This is a champion's performance. It's the type of result that puts a statement out. From the very first minute where Cronin smashed the Toulouse out half to keeping them off that line so many times, this is a big result. And it's laid down a real marker. The intensity levels were right from minute one and the fitness levels carried him through to minute 80. That fitness thing is a really good point. We've talked about Leinster's depth, and that's fine. But this was the point that the bottom of Leinster's depth barrel started to get tested. And a number of their top, top players had to do a lot more work. The amount of ball that Vanderfleer, James Ryan, Jack Conan had to get through because they were missing the two or three other heavy carriers they normally have was exceptional. And then to put in such a good performance in defence as well as attack, it was just outrageous. And the thing is, this wasn't a perfect performance for Leinster. And for me, it's more individuals that let them down than general play. Cronin's hooking is an issue now at this stage. Their scrum wasn't getting clean ball. And that's not a scrum issue. That's an individual issue. His technique is just really poor. He doesn't seem to be able to get a clean strike on the ball, which means Leinster have to push harder, longer to hold in position while he's there floating around with his feet off the ground. It doesn't help then that their line-out as well was a bit ropey. Toner is so instrumental to their line-out. And when Tracy came around for Conan, it really got worse. 
they've kind of just got to the point where they need enough of the combinations on the pitch. The other area that was a little bit weak for me was in inside centre. Rory O'Loughlin hasn't played an awful lot there. They tend to deploy him more in the outside backs and he was pretty limited. He wasn't poor, but he just wasn't offering a lot of go-forward ball. The, the other game in this pool was a 18-16 win for Bath at home. Fine. But we move on now to a side who's riding high in the Premiership. Fourth place Gloucester welcomed the visit of Munster and were treated to quite a performance by the men from the southern province. 15 points to 41. I was not expecting this to be a blowout. I was expecting this to be a tight game. Travelling to Gloucester is not an easy place to go. No, King's Home is a real fortress for them. But Munster came out with a level of intensity that they've been building on since the Leinster victory. And they just imposed themselves on Gloucester. And Gloucester just didn't know how to deal with it. They were right up in their faces as well. Like There was a real controlled aggression. You tend to get that when Peter O'Mahony is on the pitch. But it started to spread. There's a number of other players who are just going to the line. And they're looking to hurt guys. Not just to dominate them physically. And Munster's first try came from those big carries. CJ, Tommy O'Donnell, Chris Farrell. All breaking through the game line every time. It was just a yard or two. Then Murray just pinpointing a great pass. And Carberry then finished off brilliantly. Carberry had so much space. He ran over untouched. If you watch that try back, you can see Jean Klein running this dummy inside line. And Murray nearly bends the ball around him to get it to Carberry, who runs in under the posts on a post. It just shows how important it is at every level that anyone on the pitch has to be expecting a pass or look like they're going to get the pass because otherwise that defence can drift out easily onto Carberry. It does help when your number eight is going to run over the biggest player on the opposition team as well, like he's not even there. CJ Stander comfortably showing Atkinson to his seat in the build-up to that try. Set-piece was a good battle as well, although Roman Poit basically seemed to just decide whoever was putting the ball in was going to win the scrum penalty. It was a bit of a lottery. And there were plenty of scrums, because Gloucester seemed to be unable to deal with any of the box kicking coming from Conor Murray. They dropped so many high balls. Wingers nowadays have to be fullbacks in their ability in the air, and Gloucester's wingers didn't have that ability. It was, these are professional guys, and this is the basics. And it doesn't help when you've got Keith Earls and Andrew Conway running at your face as you're trying to catch the ball, but there was at least a half a dozen knock-ons in the first half alone. It's really poor. And from the set-piece platform that Munster did have, they were able to build possession and there was superb patience being shown. Just phase after phase of big hit-ups. And Rory Scannell really benefited from that just before half-time. You're pounding on the line, the ball goes out to him and he ricochets off a really weak tackle into no man's land and he goes, oh, there's a try line and just darts over. But it's the carries and the patience beforehand that just creates that extra bit of space for him to run through there the Gloucester defense were all over the place there they had no set defensive line which is why he was able to find that inside shoulder and as you said there was no defender looping back behind to try and cover it apart from their scrum half who was brushed off pretty easily Munster didn't have it all their own way though particularly in the second half you look at Peter O'Mahony going off injured very early into the second half and then Munster hold Gloucester out for 35 phases some of the best defending I've ever seen, only for Gloucester to get a try in the corner. Both of Gloucester's try in this half, they had to work so hard for them. Munster and defence were not going to be breached easily. Like, between both those tries, there was 50 phases of possession. Incredible defence. 
And you contrast that with how easily Munster seemed to be able to find scores. Another bit of genius from Conor Murray, who spots that the ball has come out the back of the Gloucester Rook. And we turn it over, and a couple of phases later, Billy Holland with the sneaky, sunny Billy Holland out the back door offload. Earls goes over in the corner for a try. Billy Holland had two of those offloads. He was in great form when he came on. It was phenomenal. And if you go back to what Murray saw in that Rook, the ball was out twice. Firstly, the ball had rolled just the side of the player attached to the Rook. But then secondly, he wasn't bound by the shoulder. Like This, this really bugs you. <laughs> You should never watch a match with me because I go mad at every ruck for all the stupid little things. <laughs> Technical fouls. So he was held onto the jersey with an arm and maybe an elbow. But if you're going to be joined to the ruck and extend the ruck that way... It's got to be shoulder. Has to be a shoulder bind. You know what though? Munster nearly had the bonus point wrapped up. Conway running down the wing and there was a slight forward pass from Farrell. But, but Joey Carberry set up the fourth try with a stunning grubber off his bad foot in the end. It was an incredible kick. And then he then decides, you know what? I'll get a fifth one with a beautiful intercept. And how deep he was before the pass he intercepted. There wasn't even a hint of him being offside because it was nearly on his own 22. <laughs> Part of this game was built on Joey Carberry and Connor Murray from halfback controlling this and spotting opportunities. But part of it as well, the Munster forwards handling. There were so many balls picked up from slightly bad passes that got turned into really good passes by incredible hands. And they're often used as screen runners in our backline moves. And you can only do that if they've got decent handling skills. You know what, though? It was the first time in a number of weeks we've seen Munster with what looks like a first-choice 23 out. We do need to keep that group of players fit. The last thing Munster need is big injuries coming out of the Six Nations period like we had last year to the likes of Chris Clusey, Chris Farrell. We can't afford that. We don't have that type of depth. For me, watching it, and this is a couple of, and this over the last couple of weeks... I worry some. I don't think this type of performance will get you much further in the competition. I like to see more play from your backline. Better teams will find ways to shut you down. Well, you know what? There's going to be fun next week. There's another Premiership side coming up, and Exeter managed to get a massive bonus point win at home to cast 34 points to 12. So all to play for in Pool Two. Moving on to Pool Three, and Glasgow face Cardiff. What seems like the millionth time this season, <laughs> and beat them. Fairly comprehensively, 33 points to 24. It was a good result and they got the bonus point, but it did not feel comprehensive watching it. Glasgow managed to get ahead, but they seemed to be happy to let Cardiff have a way back into this game every time they did so. It has to be said, the win in Scottstown was incredible. Like at one point, Shorthog cleared the ball on his own five metre line and it went all the way down the, past the dead ball line. It was pretty outrageous, all right. Particularly difficult conditions for place kickers. We saw kicks at goal that would normally be gimmies being turned down because of the force of the wind and a couple of trick shots nearly in terms of curling the ball in from the sidelines. When you looked at the lineups for this match, Glasgow definitely looked stronger. But it really doesn't help your game plan when two of your back row were injured within the first 10 minutes. It was a nightmare for them and I think it gave Cardiff a lot of energy and a lot of hope. You could tell that this wasn't a game Cardiff were particularly concerned about. They have more pressing matters on the home front from a Pro 14 point of view. They still didn't want to lose this game to Glasgow and emptying the bench due to injuries that early put them back into it. Especially when they're going to be facing the win for the second half. Looking at it though, Cardiff were lucky that they weren't further behind at multiple points in this game. Their discipline and their inability to defend the Glasgow Mall could have seen them concede a couple of penalty tries. I was surprised not to see JP Dahl go for the pocket either. You were surprised. I was amazed. I can't state enough 
how on top the Glasgow Mall was. But the problem is Glasgow weren't clinical enough when they were in those really dangerous positions. 25 minutes for, for the first score with that type of win behind you isn't good enough. No, they did manage to get two tries in relatively quick concession and looked like they were going to go in 14-0 at half time. Although they did let Cardiff over for a somewhat controversial try just before half time. Do you think he was onside? I say there was a millimetres in it either way. It was one of those where they got the rub of it. I don't think any camera angle is going to decisively say whether he was onside or not. So giving it as a try, that's fine for me. Hmm. Again, Glasgow came out in the second half, almost scored, but just butchered a couple of opportunities close to the line. The second half petered out pretty quickly. Cardiff got two tries from really good hands going wide, exploiting the narrow Glasgow defence. Whereas Glasgow picked up a few tries of their own off good pack work, maul and scrum. And there was a really good move after a quick tap and go. A couple of occasions where Glasgow just seemed to be a little bit more alert and a little bit more on the game, which you expect because they were the ones that had something at stake. Although with 10 minutes left, Cardiff had got back to within a single score. And I think it was only at that point that Glasgow genuinely realised, we need a win here. Like, we're out of Europe if we don't get this. But they got that final try to close it out. George Horn got over after a scrum. He just ran a really simple line. There was no defenders near him. It was really bad but it kind of stood to what Glasgow had been doing all through the game their set piece from a scrum perspective had been nice and tight their maul was excellent even stopping twice in open play to set up mauls which you see so rarely and the consistency of their work at the ruck was great they did manage to control the breakdown but it's not even that they were driving past the ball a lot and slowing the ball down intelligently and turning over possession really well I think credit to Cardiff though they really stuck into this game and they were missing a number of first string players Great to see the ones who were picked go out and put together a pretty decent performance and make Glasgow really work for this. But the thing is, they did work. They made hard work at this and they really didn't need to. They should have been smarter in the first half and have Cardiff beaten. We looked at the stats in the first half and Cardiff had most of the possession while Glasgow had most of the territory. They could have really driven that advantage home, kick the corners, get the odd line out. If you're going to make them clear the ball, you're going to be the one in possession. And given how strong their line-out mall was, that would have been a really good opportunity to get points. And they've got a tough fixture next week. Saracens beat Lyon in France 28 points to 10, and Glasgow get out to London next week. That is going to be a tough, tough fixture. And we'll move on to Pool 4, where there are wins for both Pro 14 teams. Ulster beat Racing 92, 26 points to 22, and Scarlets beat Leicester 33 points to 10. And we'll get started with Ulster first, as they played first. I had a feeling that Ulster could win at home. I'm so happy they did. You went out. You actually called it on your little radio celebrity spot on Radio Nalifa this week. (laughs) I called wins for all four Irish provinces. Mystic Meg strikes again. Now, this was good. And it was built off Ulster just starting the game really well. Some lovely set-piece play, big carries, and some nice link work by Louis Ludic getting the hands out wide. Lovely for Balakun to get a try on his debut at the Champions Cup. It was really good, and I'm surprised that the commentators couldn't really see Ludic's influence on the game. Um, Ferris saying he was anonymous. In the first 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, just the old uh, try-scoring pass for both the Ulster tries there, yes, Steve. Just a bit mad, like, <laughs> seriously. But you know what? It was a game for wingers, by all account. Balakun got the first try. Zebo got a try for Rassing, despite having to do with a uh, pretty monotone soundtrack from the stands. And Jacob Stockdale just doing Jacob Stockdale things. Like, is the ball just attracted to his hands? It's ridiculous at this stage. But there was a lot of good running rugby. I think there had to be, though. Both Billy Burns and Finn Russell seem to have forgotten completely how to kick a ball. 
I've never seen so many conversions missed and the kicks from hand weren't up to scratch either. Which was costly for Rassing. If you look at the margin of victory here, there was a lot of points left on the kicking tee. Rassing really should have won this though. Let's be honest. Some of Ulster's tackling was atrocious and there was a lot more tries for them to take. I'll tell you what, the camera flicked to Jared Payne chilling out in the coach's box with two or three minutes to go. I would have been very carefully compiling the only good tackles in this game because he's a lad who should be worried on Monday. It won't be a good review from a defensive standpoint for Ulster. Absolutely not. Like You look at those two rassing tries in the first half. Vakatawa breezed through about four Ulster defenders and then Zebo getting over in the corner when he really should have been put over the touchline. And that last man stuff on the wing, that's basic stuff that should be drilled into the vendors' heads from day one. The thing was, Ulster managed to find an awful lot of the ball, but they had to work very hard with it to get tries. Whereas Rassing seemed to be able to find space almost at will. That's because half their players offload like it's going out of fashion. The offloading king, Nakarawa, had a pretty quiet first half, but boy was he part of the big resurgence in that second half. He has four arms. The man is 90% elbow. <laughs> Rassing were just constantly dangerous with ball in hand. I just think the individual brilliance of Ulster players at times just dragged them across the line. That Stockdale try where he gets the ball from Addison on a switch move, goes down the wing, brushes aside one tackle, kicks the ball ahead and somehow gets around three players, collects the ball and dots down. It was amazing. And Rassing did get a try back and they nearly got a match winning try except Vakitawa with the line at their mercy in a 2-on-1, drifts the ball forward. The one time there was literally no need for a basketball pass. Yep. Just a little simple pop and they had the match won. I could not believe it while watching it. There was a lot of questions. Ulster, with a minute on the clock, won a penalty and decided to go for posts. For me, absolutely the right call. They don't need to chase a bonus point and Rassing are the kind of team who could get the ball and go 100 metres and score against you. It would have been far, far too risky. I'd say every single one of the big players in Ulster were screaming to go for the post because they played really well. And the thing is, as we've been found out the last couple of weeks, they need those players to stand up and be counted for them to have a chance. They did stand up though. You talk about top talent and the likes of Rory Best, Marcel Kutsia and Jordy Murphy in the back row and Sean Reedy as well, Will Addison, Jacob Stockdale, they really put their hands up and had standout performances, best of season performances. I'm so happy from an Irish perspective, Addison's playing in Ulster. How on earth he was not capped in England, I'll never know. He's an incredible talent. Although not quite as talented in defence as attack, and there will be a few of that Ulster backline, and the pack as well, who will have a horrendous session on Monday watching the videos. And the scrum was a little shaky at times as well. Eric O'Sullivan's still a young prop. Like, that will take time to bet in. I was more surprised with Marty Moorside not being 100%, but with him getting used to the Ulster structures and how they scrummage, that'll improve. We'll move on to the other match in this pool, and it wasn't 10% as entertaining. Yeah, Scarlets v Leicester, which the Welsh side won, but this wasn't my favourite game of the weekend. Largely because neither team had anything to play for, both already knocked out of the competition. It would have been brilliant if both sets of coaches went, we'll just both teams have a tummy bug and call off the match and it'd be <laughs> grand. Yeah, and you wouldn't have been disappointing that many fans. It wasn't the best attended. Like In a competition like this, you will occasionally have games with two teams who are knocked out. But it doesn't have to feel quite as much like a dead rubber as this one did. Like The opening five minutes were just so poor. Lots and lots of scrums. And Leicester just kicked the ball at pretty much every opportunity. 
they had no interest in hanging on to it. They were offering zero from an attacking perspective. Like 20 minutes in, we decided to try and figure out how long it would take Leicester to put 10 phases together. It took until the 73rd minute. That is just embarrassing. It's pretty poor. Even Scarlets weren't putting together a whole lot in terms of consistent phase play, but there was errors all over the pitch. And with neither side playing the rugby, it was individual moments for Scarlets that meant that they got over for a couple of tries. Ken Owen's doing a better job as a number eight than a lot of number eights do week in, week out. I love how he just ran over people for that try. I know he's there because of an injury crisis, but could you imagine if Scarlets actually had him back at hooker with a good back row? Like, they are so destroyed by injuries. They do need him back at hooker. The guy they have subbing in, his line-out throwing is still really poor. And his hooking in the scrum isn't great either. When the refs got explained to you that you've got to hook the ball and gives a free kick against you, you know things are bad. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The Scarlets had one standout player for me, Fonatia at outside centre. Looked dangerous every time he got the ball, seemed to be able to get line breaks at will, and really outshone Hadley Parks inside him, which is new. Well, Hadley Parks really grew into the game. I don't think being played at 10 for a couple of weeks really helped him. And a lot of Scarlet's backline play, and this is the thing I've seen a lot in lots of matches, has drawn a man gone out of fashion. Like, there's so much play just passing across a backline. Well, particularly when teams will employ a drift defence, you actually have to commit the player inside. Otherwise, all you're doing is playing your own way towards the touchline. And Scarlet's probably weren't able to find as much space out wide as they would have liked. So Scarlet seemed to wait for the play to break down, give the ball to Fanatia, and let him just create something. But it was good enough for the bonus point try. Johnny McNichol gives him the ball... And as Fonati is cruising back around the line, he suddenly spots an enormous hole in the middle of the Leicester defence and goes straight under the post like he had a police escort. It was amazing. Look, this wasn't a good game. I think that was a standout moment. Leicester woke up with five minutes to go, picked up a try or two. Steph Evans got a very dubious try when neither one of us can really tell if he got the ball down or not. For me, Davis for Scarlet's put his hand up Wales produced so many sevens, it's incredible. In general, I think the Scarlet's back row were pretty decent. I thought Johnny McNichol was good. It was great to see Steph Evans back. He's somebody who I think they've really missed. And particularly with Lee Halfpenny's injury, someone that they actually need in their team. You know what? Nothing at stake in this game. So we move on to Pool 5, where there was an absolutely titanic struggle between Toulon and Edinburgh. 17 points to 28. Scotland win! But after an incredible opening by Toulon, a try in the first two minutes. 60 seconds in and Edinburgh are defending on their own goal line for their lives and they can't keep out the big, massive Toulon carriers. But it didn't stop them coming back and scoring a try of their own. Edinburgh are playing some really good rugby at the moment and the offload by Jamie Ritchie for Darcy Graham's try was just incredible. It was. And then like the smallest winger you've ever seen absolutely blasts over the Toulon fullback. It was a really impressive try. I was a little worried for Edinburgh in the first half here. Toulon just seemed to be slightly sharper and a little bit quicker getting to the ball. Maybe 5 or 10% in it, but it was almost enough to get them the win. Toulon led at halftime 12 points to 8. I can see why you felt they were going to go on and win. Even if Duhan was causing his own bits of trouble, rounding Seville like he wasn't even there. Just shame he stepped into touch. He almost got out for a couple of tries. I just love watching him at the moment. But you know what? Edinburgh did come out the stronger in the second half. It looks like Richard Cockerell is doing his in-game management really effectively here. And Kinghorn got on the end of a Vandervelt grubber. Again, off a of first phase and fast, fast line-out ball. As the second half went on, Toulon just evaporated out of the match. Edinburgh shut them down completely. Edinburgh's pack have been incredible all season. And you give them a sniff of something... I say they're just like, we can win this. 
and they hit them and hit them and hit them and just impose themselves on Toulon. I'd say it was impressive, but it's actually, I expect it often now at this stage. The way that they can turn negative into positive is extraordinary as well. Mamuka Gorgadze is rampaging towards the Edinburgh line, knocks the ball on. It goes to Bill Mata, who runs halfway up the pitch and throws the most ludicrous offload I have ever seen. He does know that was pre-Watershed, yeah? Like, that type of stuff should not be allowed on TV before 9 o'clock. There are children at the game. (laughs) But James James Johnston still had a lot to do, caught the ball behind him, and his acceleration to get away under the posts. He's having such a good season. Quite understated 13, but he does his work so effectively. There's a real contrast between him and Hugh Jones for Glasgow. Hugh Jones is a little bit flash, runs really good lines, but James Johnston is just so consistent. They had a shaky last couple of minutes, I think, though. Toulon emptied the bench with a lot of younger players, guys making their Champions Cup debuts. And these guys looked like they were interested in playing some rugby. Edinburgh were creaking a tiny bit. Savea getting over for a try in the corner. Edinburgh did have a chance to go for a bonus point try at the end, but turned it down, which I found a little bit strange. They'd won the game. Who cares if you concede a losing bonus point? Go for the four tries. Look, I think this is Edinburgh's first time to win in France. They're only the third team to beat Toulon in Toulon. I think blood had rushed to the head and like, let's let's get this game over and done with. Let's get out, get out of here. Let's take the win and move on. Will they regret not getting the try bonus point? We'll know next week. Tell you what though, this was a result built on dominant ball retention, some nice variation in attack and just excellent decision making. They didn't throw the ball around. They were cool and they were composed and they were ruthless. That was when they got into the game. They really did start slow, and if they want to really push on in this competition, they can't do that. Yeah, not the sharpest game from Paragos as well. He was making the right decisions, but I'd like to see him a little bit snappier at the breakdown. But look, they're back to the top of the pool with lessons to learn, even if Montpellier whooped Newcastle 45 points to 8. That is a pumping of epic, epic proportions. Newcastle's early form in the tournament has really just disappeared. We now move on to the junior competition, the Challenge Cup. How did your little guys get on, Porik? Seriously, I can cut you out this full podcast if you want. It'll (laughs) it'll sound weird, but I'll do it. That would be the weirdest form of revenge ever. (laughs) You read up all my stuff in a different voice. Uh, Connacht uh, Connacht welcoming Sale to Galway and getting a really important win, 20 points to 18. Yeah, I've taken the win before the match. I was actually disappointed by the end of it. Oh? We controlled most of the first half. We went 17-0 up with two good tries. Bundyaki drawing in three players off a scrum pops a lovely ball to Godwin who runs clean through the sale defence. But what was really smart, he slides down to place the ball down, realises, oh, I've put the ball down, no one's near me, gets back up and goes under the posts. I saw some of the match coverage. Delang got man of the match. How uh, how did he get on? He celebrated his new contract by absolutely smashing lads with every opportunity. <laughs> we set up one of the tries. In midfield, he just creams the guy in the tackle. Ball spills. And James Mitchell was like, thank you very much. Hacks the ball through. My free try. And just dots down. Ugh, easiest try he'll ever score. But that's it. That was our last score until the penalty in the second half. Oh, how long was that? A good half hour. That's a bit much. And... You've had that performance in the last couple of weeks, keeping that scoreboard ticking over. Not something that's happening out west. No, and for me, the sales scores came from our mistakes in defence. Matt Healy will not be looking forward to the review of this game. That's two bad Mondays he's had. He missed a tackle on the sideline and Sale then run up from our 10 metre line and score a try. And then the second half, just, just too much space on his wing. I'm not sure if that's him. 
a full system failure or him not calling people over. But the ball gets kicked through and then no one commands the ball and sail, collect and dot down. But that surprises me because you have your first choice fullback, Tiernan O'Halloran, back this week, didn't you? Yeah, it's his first game back in a while. And sometimes for me, the more kick and collect, steady, stable stuff that Darylita does is just a bit more useful in cup competitions. Like horses for courses, I think. Tiernan creates an awful lot for you. But yeah, Darylita offers a much safer pair of hands sometimes. Sale very nearly came back and won this. They did get ahead 18-17, didn't they? Yeah, they got two penalties in the second half then as our discipline just collapsed, put them in the driving seat. So it was Horowitz who put you ahead in the end, right? Yeah, he got the the penalty to put us 20 points to 18 up. But Jack Carty missed one previously. He really scuffed a bad kick. But for me, that's because he'd just been clattered off the ball with a shoulder to his standing leg of a clearance kick. It was pure pure dirt for me that's real injury territory and next penalty he kicks he just completely scuffs it and not surprising but look you go ahead couple of minutes on the clock steady hands cool collected run the clock down nope we win the ball back good good win a penalty great mess up the line out oh give away a penalty oh sail kick to the corner yeah that'll happen we win a penalty yay clock's in the red kick dead game over thank god you must it have was been uh, relieved relieved I think people were were too emotionally drained to actually celebrate properly I saw your like game is over tweet and I was like this is very undramatic for you <laughs> I was so just exhausted at that point like the last four minutes took a toll Look, what were the strengths that kind of built this win on our scrum was on top i got to say, I really do enjoy watching Buckley dismantle people in the scrum. <laughs> and look, a couple of big players obviously stood up for you. Delan, man of the match. I read some great reports that Butler had a stormer as well. Yeah, Mitchell had a great game against his former club. The subs made a difference. Shane Delahunt and Quinn Rue, especially in the lineout, because that was a real faltering weakness. We failed to collect three in a row at one point. Ooh, not good. And Blade really did up the tempo when he came on. That's been a real challenge for you, is having that strength and depth coming off the bench. But you know what? It's still not solving the problem that you're not scoring late in games. Connacht really need to continue pushing on in these. You're not going to win matches by getting a marginal lead and sitting on it. No, and especially when you look at who else is in our pool. Bordeaux beat Perpignan 34 points to 27 away from home. And we're travelling to Bordeaux next week in search for a bonus point. That's going to be a big ask. But you know what? We'll run through the other results and then let's get our thinking caps on. There was actually one game in the Challenge Cup on television this week. So we could have watched it. Given the scoreline that it was, I'm probably going to go watch it later. (laughs) Claremont beat Northampton 48 points to 40. Just a complete tri-fest. And Claremont have got a bonus point win with every game. This is ridiculous. Well, their pool rivals, Dragons, got a, their own bonus point by beating Timosaurus Aaron's 59 points to three. Pool rivals. I pool compatriots. <laughs> we'll have that. In the results in pool two, Stade Francais beat Poe 35 points to 14. Uh, Ospreys, though, coming away 18 points to 20 against Worcester. Bad beating for the Ospreys and a win they needed. Yeah, that win puts Worcester into the quarterfinals. And gives Ospreys a mountain to climb. Really does. In Pool 4, La Rochelle beat Zebre 32 points to 12. And NSI got absolutely hammered 65 points to 9 by Bristol. In Pool 5, Benetton continued their good run of form, beating Agen 38 points to 24. 
while Harlequins beat Grenoble 38 points to 20. Pork, let's have a look at next week's fixtures and let's try and talk permutations because this is where it really gets interesting this time of the year. In Pool 1, Leinster travel to Wasps. I probably shouldn't have started with interesting here. Leinster will batter Wasps and qualify high in the home quarterfinal rankings, surely. Definitely a home quarterfinal for them. They just need to win with a bonus point to really guarantee it. Munster have a big home game against Exeter. They have a four-point lead over the Chiefs at the top of Pool 2, which means Exeter could still catch them with a 5 to nil match point result in Thoman Park. I think Exeter chasing a game like that will actually suit Munster, and I can see you being unlucky away quarter-finalists. If we do get a win, and if we do get a bonus point, we're looking to other pools to see whether we can be at home for the quarters. In Pool 3 next week, Saracens host Glasgow, while Cardiff hosts Leon. Cardiff and Leon, nothing on the line, whereas Glasgow and Saracens is a match for tabletoppers. Yeah, similar to Pool 2, Glasgow are currently four points behind Saracens. Hard to see Saracens not winning at home though, and particularly given that they're already on 23 points, all they need is a home win and they're probably seeded top. Although I think once Glasgow can get a bonus point or anything out of this, it should be enough for an away quarterfinal. In Pool 4, we have Leicester hosting Ulster, and Racing 92 hosting the Scarlets. And both Ulster and Racing, if they win, are likely to go through. Yeah, this definitely is a pool where there's going to be two teams emerging for the quarterfinals. In Pool 5, Edinburgh hosts Montpellier. In a winner-takes-all pool decider, I really want Edinburgh to win this, like, so much. They deserve it. Edinburgh will want revenge here. They lost narrowly to Montpellier in Round 1. And if they beat them in Murrayfield, they qualify top of their group and they've got a really good shot at a home quarter final. You could see both Scottish teams qualify for the knockout phase of the Champions Cup. From a Pro 14 perspective, that is immense. From a Scottish perspective, that would be the first time ever. I think so. We'll move on to the Challenge Cup and it's a bit more clear cut in some of these pools. Well, we have a couple of the qualifiers anyway. Claremont are already through from pool one and Dragons play them next week at home. I would be fairly confident that Claremont are going to go six wins out of six here. And six bonus points out of six as well. Very possibly. In Pool 2, Ospreys have to travel to Poe in a game where there's not really anything at stake. Neither of these teams in a position to qualify. Ospreys with hopes and prayers of favours if they have a 5-0 win, but I really doubt it. This is one of these mathematically possible, but never going to happen. In Pool 3... As I said earlier on, Connacht go to Bordeaux, needing a bonus point win to have a chance of topping the group. Well, given that Sale have a bonus point win waiting for them at home against Perpignan, I think Connacht's only chance here, even though you're level on points, is to go through on a best second place team. I agree. Sale will be ahead of us regardless of points difference on head to head. True. In Pool 4, Zebra hosts La Rochelle. And even if they get a big win against the French side, they're unlikely to qualify because Bristol will finish ahead of them, I suspect. They have a pretty soft game against Denisai to finish the pool. In Pool 5, though, Benton have a bit more of a slim hope of qualifying from this pool. They're away to Grenoble, and given the fact that Grenoble have very little to play for, we could see a big win for the Italians, and they really do need a tri-bonus point. Their only real hope, though, is for Agen to beat Harlequins in France. Otherwise, Benetton are probably going to finish behind Quinns, and they may not have enough points to get through as a best second place team. Yeah, it looks like they'll really need someone to drop the ball for them to have that slim hope of qualifying as the second best qualifier. Italian and Pro 14 rugby fans, cross your fingers, cross your toes. We want Northampton to lose to the Timmy Suarez Saracens, please. <laughs> it would be a result for the ages. 
But I think that brings us nicely to the second row top performer and clown the round. And you've picked our top performer this week. I did, Porik, and I kind of had a tough time this week. You know the way we don't like to double up a Man of the Match award with a top performer? Well, yeah. I was texting you, like, on 70 minutes on all these games, and then all the people I was picking kept getting Man of the Match. It was very inconvenient. I know, like, I was personally going to give it to Mata's offload, just the offload, but, you know, we can't do that. He got Man of the Match. I know we make up arbitrary rules, but let's stick to some of them at least. (laughs) The rules are, it's a person, not an incident. Oh, true. (laughs) So I have gone for somebody in the end, and it's Leinster's Luke McGrath. I think in a performance where defence stood out, he was the big attacking threat for Leinster. He was providing ball to his backline on a plate. His decision-making really stood out for me, and he's such a threat to the breakdown because he plays heads-up rugby. It's devastating for Leinster and Ireland fans that he's injured. Just such a nightmare coming into this critical part of the season. He really did have an outstanding performance. But I think it'd be remiss of us not to mention CJ Stander in this as well. His carrying was incredible against Gloucester. And it's I'd say that was a tough call for you. It was. CJ had one of those well-rounded games that he's famous for. Big, heavy carries, lots of yard, but making an incredible number of tackles. 21 tackles with none missed as well. But for me, ahead of CJ, ahead of... Joey Carberry, Gary Ringrose, Bill Matta, all the other people who won Man of the Match Stockdale. awards. <laughs> Jacob Stockdale. I think Luke McGrath will at least have the second row top performer award to look back on fondly from this game because that might not be a happy game in the long run. That's fair. Pork, you've picked our clown of the round. I have, and what was a very competent, actually good weekend of rugby, I've picked a moment from the Ulster match and specifically Addison. Was this the uh, reaction to Jacob Stockdale missing the try? No. Hmm. It was the penalty at the end of the game. Ah, okay. There's 60 seconds in the clock. He's given a penalty which he can run the match clock down on and he kicks it over the bar with five seconds to go. He is the luckiest man in the world that he received the kickoff and he put it out into into the stands because, oh my God, that could have backfired so badly. I just had visions of Jared Payne up in the coaching box falling backwards off his seat <laughs> with shock. Yeah, not the smartest decision. And I think he just forgot himself for a moment. Normally such an intelligent player. And you could see there was a match clock in his eye line, and he just didn't wait for it to go red before kicking over that penalty. Five seconds. That's all like, it would have been. But think about it. Rassing get that ball back. They're scoring a try. Oh yeah. Well, I think he takes clown of the round this week. If they had got a try from it, he might have been going for clown of the year as an early contender. Oh, definitely. So that's Leinster's Luke McGrath for top performer and Ulster's Will Addison for clown of the round. Sounds good. And that's us for this week. Thank you all for listening. We will be back next week for the final round of European rugby. We really do love hearing from you all. So get in touch on facebook.com forward slash the second row or on Instagram or Twitter where we're at the second row. That is 2ND, not the word second. And don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, literally everywhere. Until next time, goodbye everyone and thanks for listening. Take care.